Um, so I'd like to thank you for joining us for this session of Nursing Grand Rounds on Culture and Global Health, um, entitled Global Health Service Partnership, Teach, Travel, Serve, Change Your Life in Africa. I'd also like to welcome anyone that's viewing us online. You must attend 80% of the program to receive credit. This educational activity carries one contact hour, and we will be using the mobile and computer sign-in process for completing the evaluation and claiming credit. Um, there are also instructions in the back of the room where you can contact me, and the evaluation must be completed for the credit to be awarded to your online transcript. <coughs> for those viewing online, I'll be monitoring my email during the presentation, so you can email me if you have any questions, and I will relay them to the speaker. My email address is judith.m, as in May, langhans at hitchcock.org. Neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or a commercial relationship, um, or identified a relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this presentation, and no one refused to disclose. And finally, the desired learning outcome for today's presentation is at the conclusion of the program, the learners should have greater awareness and understanding of a specific program that provides nurses an opportunity to teach nursing students in both a clinical and classroom environment in sub-Saharan Africa. We are delighted to have Mindy Weschler mm -hmm. with us today um, to share her experiences with us, and she will introduce herself. Thanks, Judy. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, that's, this is one of the reasons why you want to work in Africa. You don't have to log in and, <laughs> and text your CEUs and worry about your computer because there isn't any such thing. But um, my name is Mindy, and um, I'll just tell you a little bit about briefly who I am. I live in Woodstock, Vermont right now, although I've been living out of a suitcase for about two, two years. Um, I graduated from nursing school in 1975. So when I embarked on this program, I was 62 years old. So you're never too old to travel, and I'm not the oldest one in the program. Um, so I graduated with a bachelor's uh, in nursing in 1975. I worked as an ICU nurse for six years or so in Boston. And then I went, I left nursing, and I went into, I guess you never really leave nursing, because here I am. <laughs> but um, I went into industry, and I worked as a rehab nurse for a very brief time for an insurance company. And then I sold medical electronics for Hewlett Packard for six or seven years. Then I worked for digital, selling medical systems to HMOs. So I've had, and I worked for PPO also for a number of years. And then I left and took care of four children at home. For, so I have a long gap in my nursing career. And then a divorce led me back to nursing in 2009. And I've been at Mount Scutney working in the emergency room and um, same day surgery for the past, since 2009 with the exception of this one year. So that's a little bit about me. Um, I, want, I just want to introduce you to this amazing program. Are there, how many people here have a serious interest in teaching overseas or doing any kind of work in global health? OK, so there's a few of you. Have any of you done any service overseas? A few of you. OK, good. So some of this may be new. Some of it may not be so new. But um, I'm glad there's a genuine interest in it. How I got here is a little bit of a story um, in terms of this particular program. Um, I took my kids to Honduras a couple of times when they were in high school. And at first I went by myself, and it was like a mission thing. I worked in an orphanage, and 
Uh, then I wanted to bring my kids into the picture, and it didn't involve any nursing care or medical care, but that's how I got started in my interest in sort of global something. And so then my daughter became a Peace Corps volunteer after she graduated from college, and she was in the Dominican Republic, and I went to visit her, and that's where this whole thing started. I worked, the year before I went to visit her on the Africa Mercy ship, which was um, stationed in the Congo, the Republic of Congo at that time, and I worked as a PACU nurse for a month, and that's really what opened my eyes to working as a nurse overseas. Came back, went to the Dominican Republic, observed my daughter, who's not a healthcare worker, um, in the Peace Corps, and I just, it just lit me on fire. I just wanted to do something with my nursing career. And so I just started perusing the Peace Corps website for opportunities, and there it was, this program. So the day it opened for my registration, I applied. So that's kind of a little bit about how I got involved in this kind of service. So this program is called Global Health Service <coughs> Partnership, GHSP, and it's a collaboration between Peace Corps and a nonprofit located in Boston called Seed Global Health which was started by Vanessa Carey, who's a physician and the daughter of John Carey, a, a brilliant visionary leader in global health. And actually, there's, if you're interested in global health, there is a one-day conference next week, the 12th, at Dartmouth College, and she's going to be one of the panelists. There's probably six, four different panels, 16 different panelists, and a variety of topics on global health. It's free. It's at Dartmouth College next week, the 12th. So anyway, this, this partnership was her vision to improve the, the quality of healthcare workers overseas. Um, and, and I'll go in, I hope this slide didn't work, because the advancer, if it doesn't, I'll just have to do it manually. Um, so it's, this program is physicians and nurses. It's funded by largely by PEPFAR, which is the President's Emergency Something something for AIDS. Um, and it's a year-long commitment where physicians and nurses work in five different countries now in Africa, teaching, both clinically and in the classroom, to improve uh, the quality of medical care and make it more sustainable in Africa. So, I'm gonna, are there any physicians here, or are we all nurses? Okay, so I'm just gonna address the nursing role. It depends on where you are and, and the terms of reference uh, that the university establishes for your job at the university. Mine was a combined classroom and clinical portion, and I was expected to be in the clinical area five days a week, you know, four or five hours a day. And then the rest was sort of left up to the university as to how much I taught in the classroom. And mind you, I have a bachelor's, so, you know, here in America, we can't really teach in a university if you don't have a master's. But we're talking about Africa, so they were very much willing to have us, especially since we have so much more clinical expertise than some of their nurses, especially in the academic settings. Um, they do have some... Um, Skills labs, very weak in terms of their simulation, but they do, depending on the place, have it. So I did work in the skills lab. We weren't invited to enhance their curricula 
too much, but we were able to take the curriculum that they have and sort of beef it up a little bit and teach pretty much however we wanted. Um, the, the curriculum is mandated by each country and their nursing council, so we, we didn't have too much flexibility. Um, I didn't participate in any professional development activities with their faculty. Um, what our role really was, was developing critical thinking skills for the students or with the students because they are largely educated in sort of the traditional English model of education, which is, you know, rote memorization, spit it out. They're not taught how to think critically to analyze a problem and come up with a solution. So that's, that was just a role, um, a glance at the role that we played. When, when I first got in my invitation to serve, and I served in Malawi, does anybody know where Malawi is? Yay! I didn't have any idea about African geography. I, I was embarrassed because I, I, I didn't know. So this little thing here is Malawi. And uh, I have another slide, but initially the program, this is the fourth year of the program, started in Malawi, Uganda, and Tanzania. And it's expanded to go into Liberia and Swaziland. So this is just a map of where the countries that we work in, Liberia, Uganda, Tanzania, Malawi, and little teeny Swaziland down there. There are about 10 nurses and physicians per country, and this year the program has grown to over 65 volunteers, which is fantastic. Um, you have to be a US citizen, you have to have an active nursing license. Um, because it's a US government position, you have to be able to pass a pretty rigid background check, you have to pass a medical exam, all that kind of stuff. Um, and again, I'm just gonna address the nursing um, portion of it. You have to have a minimum of a bachelor's. They prefer master's prepared, but I'm one of the exceptions to that rule. And actually, as time goes on, they're allowing more bachelor's nurses to participate. So some of the benefits, the benefits are huge. Um, you don't get paid, it's a volunteer position, but they have this great program of debt repayment. So if you have a mortgage, if you have a child under 25 in college, they'll pay your child's tuition, right? Up to, up to $30,000. So if you have a mortgage, if you have a car payment, if you have your stuff in storage, if you have medical expenses that can't be covered by their medical insurance, they will cover that up to $30,000. So there aren't very many volunteer programs that give you that much debt reimbursement. Um, if you are enrolled in a master's or a PhD program, you can get uh, you can get your tuition covered for your education as well. You get two vacation days a month, so you get 24 vacation days. You get all American holidays off. Um, you get all of your medical coverage, evacuation insurance, you know, all of that kind of thing. Um, you get a professional allowance of $300 a month from SEED, and you get a food allowance of about $160 a month from Peace Corps. So it's not like you get nothing. You get about $400 and almost $500 a month for food and sort of daily <coughs> expenses. And you get your housing paid for. So all of that's taken care of. So you really, in a sense, don't have any expenses. And if you want, you can buy a car, which I did. I bought a little $3,000 Mazda, and it was the best 
decision I ever made because I had so much freedom. I could drive anywhere I wanted and um, traditional Peace Corps volunteers are not allowed to drive. So um, this was my cohort that went, largely also with some of the support staff, but this was at our graduation in Washington, D.C. Um, okay, so these are the countries that we're in now. I'll show you where they were. Um, so where have you been overseas? Kenya. Kenya, okay. So Western Kenya. Yeah, okay. And who else? Rwanda. Rwanda? Awesome. Uganda. Great. I was in the Peace Corps in Costa Rica. Yay! Great. Was I a healthcare worker? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was in Malawi. You were? Yeah. Where? Malawi. You were? Okay. Do, as a nurse? No, I just went on a missions trip. Okay. Okay, so good. And yep. Haiti and Bangladesh. Amazing. So we have some really good experience in this room, a lot of it being in Africa. Um, all right, so let's see. Uh, this is just uh, one of these terrible see slides. Um, so largely what the what is the impact of serving overseas? On a day-to-day -day basis, I often wonder, is there any impact? Am I having any impact on the infrastructure? Not really. You know, really, I'm one person in a country of 16 million people trying to develop a sustainable solution for healthcare workers. But what I did feel was um, I definitely had an impact on the students, on the individual people, you know? Like, I saw the light go on, I saw the fire, I saw the questions, and that was enough for me. You know, I think at, at a stage in my life that uh, I know that I'm not gonna change the world. I know that this program's not gonna change the world. It's just that little bit of difference in maybe 10 people's lives that I can make that have, will have a positive impact. Um, teaching and mentoring is probably 80% of, of the job. Um, we, I as a volunteer and my cohort that was there with me, didn't really develop any new systems. We didn't really add much to the curriculum. So it was more, we didn't develop any academic programs, but there are sites where you do do those things and you do participate in curriculum overhauls, but I did not. I did a lot of clinical teaching and bedside teaching. And I'm gonna go into that in more detail. Um, the methodology, the emphasis on critical thinking were very, very important in as, as a nurse educator. I think wherever you are in Africa because they don't, they aren't developed with critical thinking skills. And that was that was a major emphasis for our program. Where the heck is Malawi? Well, now we know where it is. Um, I think this professional-centered pride is something that's very new to nursing in Africa, or at least in Malawi. I don't know what your experiences were, but I think nurses are viewed as mean, strict, not compassionate, not caring, wherever I was in Africa. It's just the way they're perceived. And actually, it's the way they are. This idea of caring is very foreign. They just want to get the job done and get out. 
They sleep at night under the desk. The students do all the work. So they, the students have no role model of how to be a compassionate, caring nurse, professional, ethical, upstanding. They see the nurses sleeping, and so that's their role model. And they don't get up and offer the patient pain medication. They just, they don't even take vitals at night. So our job, I perceived my role to be a role model for professional conduct and ethics. So that was a huge part of what I thought I should have an impact on. Um, engaged scholarship, well, the only way I was engaged in scholarship was that I did write a grant, and I'll talk more about that um, later, uh, for pain management, and I'll, talk, I'll go into more detail about that. But this was how we were perceived as Americans and as teachers. They loved us. And honestly, you're sort of a celebrity when you're there because we care about the students. We care about their development. We care about their, their education. We care about their, their ethics. And that's unusual. So they all want to like hang out with you, not socially necessarily, but they all want you to teach them. So it was, it was very um, fulfilling in that sense. This is just a picture of me. This was my first clinical group of students that I supervised. They were second year students, baccalaureate students, and I just love them. So, you know, this just is happy me being with five of my students. Um, there's a lot of students on the clinical um, area every day. I'm just gonna talk about Malawi for a second. Population, 18 million, I think that's a little high, I think it's more like 16, but I got this from the USAID website. And 17% live in the cities, most of them live still in tribal villages. Um, I was in a city called Mzuzu, which is in the north, which has about, uh, I'm gonna guess, like 30,000 people. It's not a city, so to speak, because it's pretty much dirt everywhere. Um, and there's no really tall buildings, but there were a lot of people. Um, I, I find it hard to believe that 5.8 billion represents their gross national income. Most of that is from foreign aid, but it all goes into the pockets of the government officials. It does not go back to the people. $340 a year is what the average person makes. So that's really staggering. It's probably next to Haiti, the poorest country on the globe. And USAID in 2015 gave $210 million in aid. Most of that goes to HIV um, work. So this is one of your um, learning outcomes. 27% of the deaths are related to HIV or, or infections that develop as, relate, uh, as it relates to HIV AIDS. Um, and I was a little surprised that the respiratory infections are the second leading cause of death, but that includes TB. Um, many of these are children. They still cook with wood, and they still cook sometimes inside with wood. So a lot of the kids have asthma, a lot of the adults have respiratory complications. And then you compound that with being HIV positive, it's not a great picture. Malaria is a huge problem there but they are doing a lot with the aid that they get to 
um, provide treatment. But I think one in every five children under the age of five dies of malaria in Malawi. Stroke and then diarrhea or diarrhea-related diseases or complications are also one of the leading causes of death. This was a picture that I took at sunrise. Um, lake Malawi is this long, I think it's maybe the seventh or eighth largest lake in the world, and it spans the entire length of the country. And it's a great place to vacation <laughs> and hang out. And my site was about an hour from the lake. But this is at sunrise, and it's not, this picture is not doctored. This is actually what it looked like, that orange, brilliant sunrise. The little fisherman there. This is my group, minus three of us, uh, at the U.S. Embassy when we got sworn in in Malawi but by the U.S. ambassador. And um, the pieces of cloth that we wear around our bottoms, although the men don't, um, this is like what women wear every day. Chitenji is the name in Malawi. It's probably called something different in Kenya and, and Rwanda, but um, it's a very conservative country. So, you know, you're, you're really not supposed to wear anything, like in most of Africa, uh, above the knee. You know, really the legs are like showing breasts, so legs are sort of out. <laughs> but this was us uh, being sworn in. This was our group at um, a uh, educational conference in December of our year. So we did have fun, but I want to talk about the challenges. The first challenge is patient suffering. It's like anybody that's worked overseas in situations like this sees it. It's inconceivable how much people suffer from pain, from disease, from poverty. And I had never been exposed in my travels in Western Africa or Honduras to this level of suffering. And that is the, one of the reasons why I wrote this grant for pain management. So just to give you a little background, in the hospital that I was working in, they keep all the narcotic medication, which is Demerol, um, and morphine, and they're scared to death to get the morphine, in one location in the hospital. So literally, if you have a patient that needs medication, the nurse has to take the order, go across the hospital, which sometimes is in the middle of the night, in the dark. If the matron or the supervisor isn't in the room that the medication is kept, you don't get the medication. And if the nurses are sleeping, certainly they're not gonna get the medication. So it's this, there was this convoluted problem of having access to pain medication. The nurses weren't trained in pain uh, assessment. They never did pain assessment. They were scared to death to give morphine because they thought the first the patient would stop breathing, and second, if you gave a second dose of anything, they would become addicted. And this is really what they believe. So how could a patient ever be comfortable in that situation? So I, it, it bothered me so much that I got this grant to do an educational thing on pain management, bought some lock boxes, had them installed in, I think I could have, I had, a, I had the money to do six lock boxes. So we started with the surgical units and the post labor unit, 
Anyway, there's six of them that are now there, and they now have their narcotics in the ward. Like, that's a miracle. Um, the nurses went through an education process on pain management, on pain assessment, and I'm not there now, so I don't know how it's working. <laughs> I'm hoping it's working better. I'm hoping the patients have better access to, to um, medication. Okay, there's some graphic pictures here, but this is what I want you to, this is what led me to this um, solution. This is a 19-year-old kid that had a open femur fracture, and like, this is what it looked like. The day that I took this picture with his, all of these pictures were taken with the patient's permission. Um, the clinical officer, who's like, um, kind of like a resident or a PA, came to the bedside and was worried about his leg being infected. So he took a scalpel and just cut him right down the middle. No, no warning, no pain medication, no nothing. I was horrified. And I asked him, what are you doing? And the kid was screaming and it was very upsetting for everyone in the ward. So that was one of the reasons that I also took this project on. I have pictures of his leg after. I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. So for me, I don't know if that was the right thing to do. But it wasn't the right thing to do from a patient care perspective, compassion, man, pain management. Anyway, it was something I struggled with every day I was there. And to try to be a role model for your students in situations like this, was really challenging. <coughs> this was uh, maybe a 70-year-old guy who had a tree branch fall on him, a fairly heavy tree branch, fell on his neck. He became um, a paraplegic as a result of this accident, was in the hospital for probably three weeks, and these were his pressure sores that developed after three weeks. One of my students was taking care of him, and, I, and so they worked 12-hour shifts. So we worked rigorously on preventing this. But once she left, the guy slept on his back all night. Nobody came to turn him, nobody came to position him, nobody came to do skin care on him. Nobody asked him anything. And in Africa, for the most part, you have a family member who's your guardian, who provides your food, your bedding, your bathing, everything. The nurses don't do that, the hospital provides you nothing. So if his guardian didn't feel like turning him or looking at it, it didn't get done. So this, again, was the kind of thing that we dealt with. This guy <laughs> turned out to be one of like my miracle patients. I am now completely convinced that the only thing that you need to heal wounds is IV antibiotics and saline and some gauze, because that's all we had. This guy is a mute, homeless, nobody knows his name, nothing about him. Somebody brought him to the hospital in an ambulance and he was starving, so he took a piece of chicken out of a woman's cooking pot and she threw boiling water on him and so you can see the amount of burns, and look at the condition of his clothing. He had been in the hospital for over 24 hours like this. He stunk, 
he was in a, a burn room with another patient. You can just imagine what that was like. And so nobody had even changed his clothes. So suffering. This is an 11-year-old boy who had someone attempt to cut off his penis to sell it to the witch, witch doctors. This happened a lot in Malawi. Uh, not, I shouldn't say a lot. It happened not infrequently that you would, we would get. This happened twice while I was there in six months. One of them was an older person, but the, the incision was exactly the same. And they sell the male and female parts to the witch doctors. I have a picture of this kid after surgery. He was lucky. This was just a boy who um, had a uh, stepped on a live wire and had an electrical burn. And you see the debridement going on, no pain medication, nothing. The kid was like 14 years old. Another burn victim, a lot of burn patients, and they just get treated on the regular surgical wards. There's no rule of nines for determining a transfer to a burn center, because there isn't one. So you just have to take care of these patients on the wards. The nurses do their own debridement. So this is where, these are the two um, charge nurses that I worked with on the male surgical unit. And they were my saving grace there. We became very good friends. And they helped me so much with my students. I helped them with their pain situation. Um, but this is the kind of collegial relationships that made my job so worthwhile. This guy on the, on the right, Stanley, um, has such a fierce desire to come to the States and work. And out of the blue, I got an email from a colleague in Oklahoma that I met at a yoga training, who is a PhD nurse at in Tulsa at a, some big hospital there. And she said, oh, I have this person that works for Avon Healthcare, and do you know any nurses in Malawi that want to come here and work? So I'm like, yeah. So Stanley's in the process of trying to come here to work. He has yet to pass his English exam. He's like half a point away from passing. He's taken it twice. He's going to be on his third try. And I feel a little guilty about that because the brain drain situation is, is a problem. They get training, they leave the country because they make more money. Even in Zambia, you can cross the border and make five times what you can in Malawi. But you know what? It's one person, he wants a better life. If I can help him, I'm gonna do it. So, so we'll see what happens with Stanley. So this is a picture of the ward that I worked on. Uh, it was not unusual to have to step over patients that were on mattresses on the floor. There were um, 48 patients on the ward generally three nurses and a lot of students that really didn't know what they were doing. But um, the pain project that I did was on this male um, surgical ward, and we also did the female surgical ward. We educated the entire staff. We installed um, lock boxes in each ward. Um, the, the medication, like they, they didn't use Zofran, and they had it. They never used it, even for people that had like, um, obstructions and they were nauseous and vomiting and 
Anyway, so we sort of redid their stocking of some of their medication and taught them how to use morphine and things like that. And we also did um, a survey assessing patient satisfaction with the care before and the care after they were taught how to do pain assessment. Some of that is still ongoing because I had a very short time to implement it. This was, uh, these are the staff that I worked with pretty much, although they were not all there every day. There were really, as I said, usually only two or three of them there at a certain time. But I realized that food was the way to make friends because for a long time, like a month or two, I felt like a real outsider. And one day I brought a cake in, like I think it was a banana bread or a coffee cake or something, and they went crazy. And from then on, I was like their best friend. So maybe once every two weeks, I'd bake a cake and bring it in. And that was all it took was to bring a cake. It was pretty easy. So that's, that was one of the ways that I found was the most successful, whether it was in the hospital or anywhere else, was to bring food. Um, that's me eating cake. <laughs> These were some of my students that just, they love to pose for photographs. I don't know if they think they're going on, you know, in an American magazine or something, but they always have this like, far away look in their eyes. Um, so with some of my successes, I, I integrated some of these slides from my close of service presentation. Um, this is the kid with the open femur fracture. That's pretty darn good, right? Using nothing but saline. Like, we, he, got, he got grafted. These are the areas that took of the graft. But, you know, it's pretty clean in the the, the new tissue, or the grafted tissue, looks pretty good. Anyway, he ended up completely healing and going home, which was a miracle, and weight-bearing and everything. It was, the, the surgeon that did this um, is a guy that comes from Alaska every year for five months, and all he does is orthopedic surgery in this hospital. So, uh, I don't know if it was his skill, but Kid went home. This is Peter. You recognize his maybe healing burns on his torso, and it, they ended up amputating his left arm because there was no way we could save that hand and his lower arm. Nobody else would touch him. He had maggots coming out of his wounds, and I took him on as my personal project. And it was good for the students to see this. This was like compassion, this was caring, this was commitment to this patient that nobody wanted to go near because he was homeless and he didn't have any, any smell and he had maggots coming out of his wounds. It's the first time I had been exposed to this. Never had I ever seen maggots coming out of a wound. And I, I really don't want to see it again, but <laughs> he wasn't the only one. But, you know, saline gauze, that was it. That's all we had to treat him. He got, he got IV antibiotics for maybe a week. Then that was it for him because he kept pulling out his IV. He had a Foley catheter for a while. That came up, you know. So every day I would come and I secretly nicknamed him Pavlov because 
we didn't really even, I'm calling him Peter, I don't know what his name is. I still don't know what his name is because he couldn't speak and he couldn't write his name and nobody ever came for him. So um, every day I would come with food for him because there's no food at the hospital. Sometimes he'd carry around a piece of white bread, but to heal this kind of wound, you need protein. So I'd be bringing him chicken and rice and every day I would drive up in my little yellow car and he would come flying out of the ward come right over to my car and take the food and go. So this was one of my successes. Uh, he he uh, liked to take his own bandages off. He would not let anyone else touch him except for me. And then he got grafted fairly unsuccessfully, but here he is ready for discharge. This is the kid that had the um, severed penis. Luckily, it didn't transect his ureter or anything. He was able to just have a catheter, and that's pretty amazing. Uh, we have a surgeon there from um, University of Cincinnati who's like in residence in Malawi. He's a general surgeon. Amazing guy. And he and um, another American who's been living in Africa for 23 years is a Jesuit priest, general surgeon. So the two of them did all the general, pretty much all the general surgery where I was. Okay, my challenges, loneliness. I'm not gonna paint a rosy picture because it was, it was tough some days. Um, I had two daughters. My daughter in the red was the Peace Corps volunteer. My daughter on the right was still in college and she said, mom, you can go, but you have to come home for my graduation, which I did in December. And then my little dog, Zoe, the hardest thing was harder to leave her than it was to leave my children. <laughs> and she was 11, 12, just turned 12 when I left, and she died in November after I came back. She, she got very ill in April. I flew home because I thought she was going to die. And um, she recovered. I went back to Africa, came home August, went back to Malawi. Because I wanted to go back for another year, but I was too worried about my mom, who has Alzheimer's, my dog, and my kids. So I went back, sold my car, got rid of my stuff, came back, and she died two weeks later. But now, I'm completely free because I don't have a dog. Okay, this was my site mate, Carol. There were three of us um, in my site. One of my roommate actually left after uh, Christmas holiday. She didn't, did not come back. But Carol and I were very close. Um, we became friends with other Peace Corps volunteers in Malawi with Peace Corps staff. There was a lot of access to um, colleagues on, on all levels. We went places like this was my favorite place to go on the weekend and hang out on the lake. I traveled extensively. So from that perspective, I had the loneliness and the suffering but I also had freedom to travel and go wherever I wanted. Huge training in safety and security. I never felt threatened. I never felt unsafe. We get a lot of training in that, so that was not an issue. <laughs> this guy was the security guard who was stationed outside my um, house at night. And I don't think he could have stopped <laughs> like a dog from coming at me, but he was the sweetest thing. Every time he saw me, he would salute and say, hello, madam. And he has now since died. 
he was very sick when um, I was there. But anyway, I had these like just adorable little people around me all the time. This was another Peace Corps volunteer, a traditional Peace Corps volunteer, my daughter's age, who I became very good friends with. Sarah, my other good friend in the community, I'm just trying to give you a picture of my expanded role outside of the hospital. She was the head of the optometry, is the head of the optometry department at the university. Um, so we would go on bike rides. This was my um, counterpart at the university. Um, her name is Atupele, and we worked together on curriculum issues, on clinical issues, on lectures. So I, you are assigned a counterpart when you go to sort of show you the ropes, to be your support system. That was her. Uh, we had visiting physicians like Sarah, <laughs> a different Sarah, who came from the States to do surgery <coughs> in the hospital. I became very good friends with the Brothers of St. John of God in, in Mizuzu, and they do a lot of um, work in mental health and a lot of clinics. They're, they're very focused on medicine. And so Brother Michael was just celebrating his 50th year as a, as a brother. Challenge three was my toilet seat. <laughs> Can you imagine sitting on this every day like this? and this and this, it pinches your skin every time you sit down and get up. It took me three months to get a new toilet seat. And I'm telling you, that was one of my biggest challenges, was how to get through simple little things like that. I did have hot and cold running water, I had a refrigerator, I had an oven, a stove, I had a beautiful backyard, I'll show you that. Another success, was this one whose name is Mindy because one of my students was pregnant and she came in on a Monday morning having been due over the weekend. Oh, madam, I feel cramps. And I said, okay, let's go to labor and delivery. And she was like already six centimeters dilated. So she didn't have guardian with her. No mom, no husband, nothing. So I said, well, I don't want to impose this on you, but if you want my support and you want my help, I'd be happy to stay with you. She said, oh, yes, yes, please. So thankfully, she delivered the baby within two hours, and her mother finally showed up, didn't bring any food. So I left, got food, and came back. And when I came back, she was holding the baby, and she was nursing, and I said, she's beautiful. What are you going to name her? And she says, Mindy. <laughs> I just burst out crying. That was all <laughs> that it took. So she was born in September of 2015, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, that's one of my little successes. I did have this teen girls group through uh, a convent. I don't know why I kept being drawn to these nuns and brothers, but I did. And um, so I had about 14 teenage girls ranging from 13 to 23 who wanted to know about sex, HIV, you know, they're orphans, so they live in the community with different people, but they don't. They asked me one day, do you, do you get your extra dose of vitamin K when you have sex with someone? I'm like, where did you hear that? This is the kind of stuff they believe. So they had never been to the beach. Never. So this is one of my favorite stories. They don't own bathing suits. They had never been to the lake. So I said to Sister Martha, 
here is $10. Go to the market and buy them bathing suits. So she goes to the market, she buys each one a bathing suit for 500 kwacha, which is like less than a dollar, it's like 75 cents. She, gets, she brings home 14 bathing suits, and the girls come in and she goes, can you imagine like a US teenager getting a bathing suit that way? It was like the most amazing process to compare our culture, because I have four daughters, with uh, you know how girls get bathing suits in Malawi. And they were so happy, they were so excited, they were so grateful, and the bathing suits were falling off and their breasts were hanging out. They didn't care, you know? So I took them to the beach and it was the most joyful day. They were so happy. It probably cost me, I don't know, 50 bucks to take them to the beach with the gas and the lunch and the whole thing, but it's a story and a vision I will never, ever forget. So that, that was just another way that I became attached to my community. Look at these faces, like, <laughs> beautiful. The women in Malawi, I don't know about Rwanda, they, they, have, they wear, wear their hair very short, which may be related to dirt, bugs, lack of water, Personal style. I, I, I mean, oh, I just love it. I think they're beautiful. Uh, then here's me and Sister Martha. She became such a good friend of mine, and um, she was in charge of all these girls. I don't know if this is going to activate, but this, this was a. I went to a jubilee at the convent. It's not going to. It's not going to. It's a video. I don't think I can do it. These are nuns. Aren't they great? So, I mean, I had opportunities to just participate in ceremonies and parades like this. <laughs> so, that's, that was just a wonderful day. Uh, there's my little baby. Uh, I also worked at a treatment center. This was Brother Raphael and Charlone, who was a Dutch girl who was a volunteer. Um, there is one treatment center for addiction, for drugs and alcohol in all of Malawi, 16 million people. And it was in the community that I was living in. So I became very involved in um, doing addiction counseling at this particular treatment center, and these were two of my colleagues there. So that was a nice adjunct to my work. I taught this guy, Efron, how to make bird baths out of concrete, and it became his little business. So he would make maybe six or eight of these bird baths out of these big leaves, you know? So he would pay for the materials, like a bag of concrete was like, 10 bucks, something like that. And out of that, he would get maybe six or eight bird baths. And I would take them to the market in the long way. And he would sell them, or the people would sell them, and he would get, you know, he'd get all the cash for it. So for him, it more than doubled his income. It wasn't sustainable because the long way was four and a half hours from where I lived, but someone else can, can help him out. He, he could sell them at the market in Mizuzu, there just isn't as big a market as there is in the long way, because there's more white people there. This was my backyard. It, it was complete dirt when I got there, 
And Efron, the mason, did all the brickwork, and he made me a little yoga patio over here. So I was able to do yoga under this amazing tree that I had where there was an owl every night that would come. And I had a garden with arugula and squash and passion fruit. And but then I went to this mine, and I got this piece of rose quartz that was incredible. Um, so I made my little piece of paradise in my backyard. Another student of mine um, gave birth on, in April to a little boy. And I tried to strap him on like they do, and I was not very successful. <laughs> Hang it off. Um, I also did things like my bucket list was to go surfing, which I did in Cape Town. And the first, this is my first wave. I fell, open dislocation of my finger, because the water was super shallow. First wave. <sighs> First one, I was so disappointed. I, I stood up and I was like, oh, my finger's going sideways. <laughs> but it's really cold and I have to go back out. And then I turned my finger over and the bone was protruding. So I haven't gone surfing since, but I got great medical care because I was in Cape Town. And it was less than $500 for the emergency, the, the suturing, the hand specialist, the whole thing. <coughs> so and I traveled a lot. I saw every kind of wildlife imaginable. These are just a few of the pictures. The gorillas I saw in Uganda. Um, great gorilla sightings in Rwanda too, I know. Um, but that's one of the, I'm going back. I'm going back to Swaziland as a volunteer in July. So I'm hoping you sense my enthusiasm for travel. Uh, I went to Tanzania with my daughter when she came over for a month after her service. And we went to a Maasai village, and just these women were just amazing. Uh, these were the countries that I visited while I was there. I hope to add a few more. This was one of my special students. This was a little boy that had a terrible witch doctor accident. Uh, he had had a dream that he was going to kill his mother and father. So they took him to the witch doctor, and the witch doctor poured boiling water on his leg which had an open wound, and that's how they thought that the spirit had entered him. So he had terrible, terrible burns, but he has since recovered. Um, Sindika actually did my laundry, because Dr. Park had a washing machine, and Sindika lived with Dr. Park and took care of his house. So Dr. Park let us, because we did our hand washing for like seven months before Sindika did it, and he also worked in my garden, and those are my eggplants, or his eggplants, however you want to look at it. Um, just some pictures from clinical teaching. These are level two students, um, you know, learning about placing in G-tubes, aspirating, how to check for placement, all that kind of thing. Um, some of my, these are my level two students again. Um, I would have them over for dinner or lunch, and everything I made them, they didn't want to eat. All they wanted was rice, sema, Chicken, I don't know what the word for Sema is in Kenya or Uganda. It's with maize flour. Anyway, um, and we had two baby showers because two people had babies. Um, we're, I know we're running short of time and I want to open it up for questions. This was a, I did also clinical teaching in the ICU because I have ICU experience and ER but there were hardly ever any patients there because there was no equipment. They didn't have an EKG machine, they didn't have a defibrillator, they did have a monitor that worked, so I showed her how to use that. 
But, uh, and they had a ventilator that worked amazingly, but they had one for the whole hospital. So then you had to make a decision who gets it. Um, I took students out to district hospitals way out in the boonies and that's kind of what they look like. We did have a skills lab. They learned CPR, they learned how to take blood pressures, put Foley's in, that kind of thing. Give injections, put IVs in. Can't remember what else we were doing here. That looks like an IV start. Uh, just being crazy little students, teaching me how to eat sugar cane, which was kind of disgusting because you just have to spit out all the time. And then they sell these at the side of the road. The mice, you see those? The kids get them. I don't. I, I don't know if they smoke them out, but they, they, they sell them on these sticks. <laughs> they eat them. And these were my. These are the. You have a lot of support in country. You're supported by the Peace Corps country director. You're supported by the Peace Corps office. These two were my. Um, country representatives in country that negotiated all the university contracts. Anything I needed, I could call them, and they were so helpful. This is a picture of the lake in the morning, and my year was really about the people. If any of you uh, want to apply, um, the applications will open this year in June for July departure in 2018. They're closed now for the current year because the deployment is in July. And um, this is their website, Seed Global Health. And there's some flyers in the back if you want to take any. Um, this is my email if you have any questions or you want to contact me at any time. I'd be happy to discuss your interest or your non-interest. Um, and if you visit, if you send an email to this, when the applications open, you'll get a, an email saying, okay, system is open for applications if you want to, if you want to apply. You'll be able to generate some kind of automatic thing. So that's the end of my presentation. I don't know if you have any questions. I'd be happy to answer any questions for you. What about the language? I mean, was it, how was... Oh, the language? The they have two national languages, English and Chichewa, which is the national language of Malawi. However, I lived in the north where they speak Tambuka. So we got a lot of language training in the long way for Chichewa, which was useful, but all of the teaching is done in English. But they, their English, spoken English is okay, their written English is pretty bad. The children are supposed to learn English in school, but most of the villages, they're not really doing it. So I have a question on, uh, you talked about NG, I was in Western Kenya, and um, I'm so glad Alice is sitting next to me because she helped find me before we went. Um, so it was the English model of medicine, mm -hmm. you know, so all their references, so I was learning my CPR, and it's ABC there still. So again, when you went there, you said you didn't have the ability to change curriculum, but was it modeled after a certain, was it modeled after the English? I'm not really sure. Um, about their nursing curriculum and who it was modeled after. Um, Even their healthcare, you know, was did you you did CPR training, and how did you do it? What was the model that you used? For the American model. So BAC started with the Professions for Association. Yeah. Yeah. So where I was, they did ABC. So it's just interesting to think. Yeah. About. 
because I didn't want to introduce anything that was not going to be supported by their follow-up. So NG2 placement, you talked about that. Mm -hmm. um, and you said, how did you verify placement? Well, this that's a good question, because in their um, curriculum, it's very specific how you can verify placement. And that is with so, you know submerging it in water, which right, we don't do that anymore, auscultation, which we don't do. And uh, well, they can't do X-ray. So right. what was no. the other one? Um, oh, a pH. Right. And they don't have a pH paper. Typically. So really, auscultation is the closest you can get to accuracy because they don't do portable X-rays. Correct. Right. Yeah. But it's just you know it's again the standard that you might have here, and how do you exactly. then do with what they have there and make make sure it makes sense? Well, it was interesting too because pain management is part of their curriculum, but I never saw it. Anywhere, never, never saw it taught, never saw it in any syllabus that I was working with. Um, so I, I don't know where it was taught, but it wasn't used in the hospitals yeah, at all. The culture, you don't talk about it. Yeah. Did you see much hand washing? Because when I was over there and in the hospital, I didn't see much hand washing. No, because there's no soap. And they have water sometimes. But then so I gave my students, like that I supervised, a little goodie bag. You know those little plastic party bags? Oh my god, they're so happy. I gave them a washcloth so they could dry their hands after they washed them. I gave them hand sanitizer, candy, a little notepad, some bandage scissors, you know, stuff that they wouldn't normally have access to, but you need that stuff. So no, there was no soap. And if I brought a bar of soap, it would disappear because somebody would steal it. But no, the hand washing is Although, interestingly, I noticed that Malawians in their culture are rigorous about hand washing before they eat. I mean, we all had Germex, but we were told specifically, do not use it when we're in the hospital because then they would be offended. And I'm like, that was so hard for me being a nurse going from patient to patient mm -hmm. and not being able to use my Germex. You know? I used it. Did you so, work at Kamusa? No, we actually just, we went, I mean, we were just there on a mission trip, so we went to Children's Hospital and we're visiting and, and stuff like that. So it was really hard to like, go from one child to another, and I'm like, oh my god, I don't wash my hands. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it was like, we were just in there talking. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. At least one of you has a serious interest, and if not, I'm sure you'll be doing something else. Thanks for coming. Yeah. <laughs>